episode 54 of Short Fine Legs, the cricket podcast that might be little, but has all the grace and poise of a Sachin Tendulkar cover drive. And speaking of the little master and the number 54, that was Tendulkar's bowling average from 200 tests, where he took 46 wickets, including, now listen to this, Mark Taylor, Alan Border, Michael Slater, Muhammad Yusuf twice, Inzima Mulhak, Justin Langer, Herschel Gibbs, Gary Kirsten, Sean Pollock, all those staffers in the same spell of three for 10 in 2000. Adam Gilchrist, Matthew Hayden, Stephen Fleming, Jacques Cullis, Kevin Peterson, Brendan McCullum, and Mark Boucher. How's that for a haul from a guy who reached God levels because of what he did with the bats? Nora Pongolo, great as always to share the pod with you. Have you ever been dismissed by a part-timer? Who was it? What was the context? And did you throw your bats against the wall? Um, hey, hello, mate. I um, hope you well. Um, my answer to that straight away is no. I tend to <laughs> just be completely defensive when I'm against um, those other type of bowlers, so I do not engage at all. <laughs> really? You don't, you don't think, this? what is this guy doing bowling against me? I'm going to put him into row Z. Um, row Z is not really my type of game, I'll be honest. <laughs> 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 so that would be some serious risk for me if I had to be looking to hit a part-timer out of um, the attack. Right, right. Uh, well, let's unpack on the show, but unfortunately, we're not going to have a lot of time to get to it all. Now, when we started this pod a few years ago, you know, it was billed as a show for fans by fans. And as cliched as that is, there's some truth to it because you know I, I love this game and I wanted to platform... You know, it'd be great to talk about the brilliance of Ben Stokes and the novelty of the 3TC, and, and, and we will towards the back end. But because we're a South African cricket show and, and because we are dedicated to social justice and sports role in that ongoing campaign, and because so much of the discourse over the last two weeks has been dominated by the words of Lungengidi, the backlash from retired wire players, the support offered by black coaches and players, and the subsequent solidarity demonstrated by current players of all races, it's pertinent to start there. So, Nons, what were you thinking when you saw the players and some commentators and coaches take a knee and raise their fists before the start of the Solidarity Cup on Saturday? Oh, it's, uh, I've got to say, from one point of view, it's, it's been really good to see um, everyone coming together and um, looking to support the cause and actually talk about what's been happening around our country. I think it's important that we all acknowledge that... Um, what the players have done um, coming out and um, sharing uh, um, sharing their experiences, it's not something that we can, um, you know, just um, brush under the carpet. I think it's time that um, it's brought to the surface and we've actually, you know, talk talk about it and actually find solutions to it. And, um, and you know, South African cricket, I think, will be in a better place once we deal with these issues um, within our game. I think it's important that um, we start um, finding solutions to them and uh, yeah, I've got to say it's been, uh, it was really great to see the, um, everyone coming together, especially white players showing their solidarity around um, the movement. I think that is important. Uh, we can't, players of colour can't do this on their own. And it's important that um, all, all players of all races come together and um, start finding solutions. Yeah, I mean, that was that was the next point I was going to address. We've seen a lot of white players show the support, started with Rassi van Edison, then it moved to Dwayne Pretorius, and I guess most notably Fath Duplessis, former former skipper across the board, who I, uh, you know, I'm a huge fan of the way he conducts himself, and who I thought was 
was very, not, maybe not brave isn't the right word, but I thought it was very pertinent and salient that he mentioned that he'd made a mistake in his capacity as captain when he said that we don't see colour in response to Timber Bavuma's dropping from the side. And I think, I think a lot of people, a lot of white people can certain, should be able to relate to that because I myself know that I've said some dumb things in, in my life out of ignorance, you know, to, to, to black and brown South Africans, not because, you know, I'd never consider myself an, an overt racist, but, but ignorance it takes hold in, 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 in different ways. And, you know, Faf was speaking in a press conference, any second language. And that's, that's, that's never a good way to, to articulate his true feelings, but to come in and say, I made a mistake. What a refreshing breath, you know, breath of air that was, wasn't it? Yeah, that was that was incredible. Like you said, especially for someone who just recently stepped down as South African captain. And we know the responsibility and the pressures that go with that job. And for someone of that stature to come out and say, you know what, I got it wrong um, a couple of months um, earlier. And those... These are the things that are going to help us as a country and as a cricket family to, to start finding solutions. Is that we know that, like we said, not everyone intends to cause harm, or it's just that, like in age, just pure ignorance, not not knowing or understanding, you know, the history behind South Africa color. It's been, uh, uh, you know, one of those things that it plays in. It's, it's, it's visible in everything that we do, to be honest. We can't ignore it. You can't not see it. And if we say all of a sudden that it's something that doesn't exist, I think we, we're, not, we're not being true to ourselves. Mm. And I thought that was really important for me to, to see a captain recognize that moment and say, I've got it wrong and I'm willing to listen. I think that is the most important part as well, saying we're listening and um, then we'll start um, conversating with people. We said off off the air that we want to dedicate an entire pod to the to the captaincy debate, and I, I think you know we'll talk about the merits of their of their place in the team and you, you know their tactical acumen. But I I, I tweeted that Rusty Funderson. I don't think he, I, I, he's he's still not my pick for captain, and I don't think he's favourite now. But he must have increased his chances, or at least his standing in the conversation by showing an act of solidarity with the movement, by, by showing an awareness of, 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 of the social situation in suffering cricket. I mean, do you think that, that that counts for anything? And, you know, Aidan Markham and Dean Elgar, Kesha Maharaj, that's all I guess, but, but Aidan and Dean, the, the, the two of the other white candidates, as it were, have, have, have been silenced, at least publicly. Do you think it's helped Rusty in any way? I mean, can we, can we draw, can we connect those two things? I think, to be honest, in, from management point of view, I don't honestly think they would look at that. Um, um, but I've got to say, in South African sport, as a captain, you know that you're not just a captain on the field. There's a lot of responsibilities off the field. I mean, you look at the guy like Sia Colisi in the past couple of weeks, um, has come out and, and actually said, um, I will use my platform to raise all these issues. And if it does cost me my position in the team, so be it. I will continue speaking out. And I think for me, that's just how a captain should be in South Africa, understanding all the, um, the pressures and the issues that it comes and uh, responsibility that you have, not just to your team, but to the nation and what you should represent as a South African captain. And I do feel that um, keeping quiet in this time uh, and um, it's, 
I don't think you're sending the right message. And as someone who wants to be in position or a leadership position, you shouldn't be picking and choosing the moments that you stand up as a leader. And I think the guys that do come out and actually voice their opinions and, and speak um, to, to these issues, I think will, for me, win the public in terms of at least perception of the types of leaders they, they are. So for me, um, I do feel that some, some players might, might have missed the opportunity to actually show the public what types of leaders they are. Mm-hmm. So, now, so, so that it's not just about the team, environment that you captain but actually you've got the you know the right pedigree to be um, a national leader if i may call it that no i, I completely agree um and as this conversation develops we we now started to turn our attention to what happens next once the talk has stopped and for that we turned to hussein manak of course is a a, a great friend of the show, former first class cricketer turned national selector sabc commentator He's been quite active on social media using his platform, and that's where Nons and I began our conversation. Hussein Manak, thank you for joining us today on Short Fine Legs. You've been very busy recently on social media, and you've been quoted in various publications. Uh, how have you found the waters of South African cricket lately? Thank you. Thank you very much, and, uh, and, and it's, a, it's an absolute pleasure to, to chat to you guys. I don't think the plan was... Uh, to, to be busy, but uh, yeah, I think you know a few things have happened in the last week or two, and uh, yeah, it just kept us kept us nice and busy. I've received, I must say, I've received a number of calls from players, from um, current players, ex-players, administrators who um, are quite concerned. And you know, things like the Makai Intini interview, I think, was groundbreaking in a sense that people, not for the first time, but I think it, it really hit people hard in the belly, uh, where people got to really understand and, and more than understand, actually got to feel what uh, a player like Makaya went through. And, of course, uh, to take it a step further than what many other black leaders in the country are going through and have been through. We, I don't want to quote who she is because I really don't want to give her any more airtime, but we saw a, I think we can call her a right-wing um, social commentator, shared, shared several pictures of Makaya and Tini smiling with, with his white teammates after taking wickets. And she basically was, was, was insinuating that because here are pictures of him smiling with white teammates, he could never have received racism from, from those same teammates. And I likened it to this, the same thing as showing a picture of a, of a happy couple as proof that there was never domestic violence in that relationship. Is it quite hard to, to, to balance that juxtaposition of on-field camaraderie and off-field isolation? Perhaps you can speak on that. Yeah, I think, you know, I even received, uh, you know, so on Sunday there was the 3T competition. Mm. And, of course, I think it was the day before that when Makaya came out and spoke about his experiences while in the, in the protest setup. And then, of course, on the Sunday... Um, or was it on Saturday and there was a 3T competition and because of at the 3T he of course works for Supersport as a commentator so he was there as a commentator in his professional capacity and Graham Smith happened to be next to him and I'm putting happen in the commas because very often these things seem to be um, you know uh, planned so anyway Smith was next to Makaya when they went down on the knee and they took the knee and everything else. 
And people then were going like, but hang on, Makaya seems okay. And he went on, on commentary and he was his probably self and whatever. Um, and, you know, so people ask like, is everything okay now? You know, and I think it's, one has to understand that Makaya is a professional. So he was a professional cricketer. When you in a professional setup, so if you and I have an issue on the side, outside our professional life, uh, a personal issue, whatever it may be, but when we come on air or on stage or on the cricket field, we're professionals, we're getting paid to do a job and we've got to act like professionals in the interest of the team and the country or the company or the organization or whatever the case is. And I think you've got to give a lot of credit to people like Makaya and many others who go out there and do what they need to do on the field, you know, and he's done that for years. And he's just got a wonderful, bubbly personality. And I don't think you can use that example to say that everything's fine. You know, that's just ridiculous because at the end of the day, what is going on behind the scenes, nobody really knows. And I think he's now in a position to be able to talk about it. When you're a player going through all that, it's almost impossible to speak about it. I mean, I, I really do feel for young players at the moment. A few of them are hinting they want to come out and talk about things. But currently, if you are playing and you're contracted and you have a contract which stipulates that, you know, you can't just go out and say what you want, when you want. Generally, if you are going to be saying something in public, it's going to be against your employer, uh, the people you sign the contract with. So, you know, you're basically going to be shooting yourself in the foot. So, yeah, I mean, you expect to hear those type of things, but at the end of the day, you know, it doesn't take away from the hurt, the pain, and the experience that Makaya and all the other black cricketers have been through and are still currently going through. Yeah, no, absolutely. Do you feel a sense of obligation, you know, with your platform, with your standing, obviously the way going from player to, to, to selector and now a respected commentator, both with the mic and on social media, do you comment partly, obviously you, you comment because the subject is, is important to you and you feel like, um, you know, sharing a personal anecdote has power in its own. But do you feel a sense of responsibility, of, of obligation? Do you feel like you would be wasting the, the platform if, if you weren't speaking out? In a way, I think, I think all of us have that responsibility. Um, you know, I had a chat with a journalist, a South African journalist yesterday, and he was just asking me about what is the way forward. And one of the things I said to him, I said, you know, I think we need to move to a scenario where, very similar to match fixing, where if you get approached as a player, you now in a situation where you don't have an option, you have an obligation to report it. Mm. And I think we must start moving towards a situation where organizations like Credit South Africa need to take the lead and stay and, and get that commitment. Firstly, they must make the commitment that every player, administrator, coach, everybody involved in the system must commit to reporting racism, like how they commit to report match fixing. Every time they encounter it or come across it. And I think, you know, all of us, particularly people like you and I who have a bit of a platform where we have a few viewers or listeners or whatever or followers, I think we have a responsibility to make people aware of what's happening. Um, I think that's really what it's about. I think, 
you know, if we don't talk about these issues, they will, issues, they will forever be hidden uh, or swept under the carpet. And, you know, I've been, you know, I've been talking about these issues for years and, uh, I, you know, it, it must have been 15, 20 years ago. And, you know, I asked my wife to try and find an article which was in the citizen. So what had happened is um, I was, I, I was either still playing or just stopped playing. And I then went and did an interview and spoke about exactly what we're talking about today. So we're talking like probably 10, 15 years ago. Mm. And a few days later in the citizen newspaper, Pat Simcox came on and had a full go at me and said, who is this guy? He hasn't even played international cricket. Who does he think he is? And he had a full go at me. I then called the newspaper and I said, okay, you've allowed this guy to, to, to really um, write me down and have a go at me. Would you allow me to uh, write a response? And they did. And I responded to him. And, I, and since then, he was quiet. I, I think, you know, then the one day when I did my level three coaching course, I found him on the level three coaching course and we were doing it together, you know, and then we used to, we used to chat about these things. But, you know, at the end of the day, I think we all have this responsibility. I, I, I believe I do because, you know, the thing, Daniel, is we as South Africans and, and global citizens, I don't think, you know, if, if, if my son or my grandson tomorrow has to go through the same experience I went through in, a, in an all-white change room, or even if it wasn't an all-white change room, whatever the situation, but discriminated against, made you feel like you don't belong, excluded, um, and, and his life made very difficult. So if my son or grandson had go through that again, who do I blame? You know, surely now that we are in a position where we can talk about it. I mean, we're not in 1970s apartheid or 1960s apartheid where we're not even allowed to talk. We can speak freely about these things. So we have a responsibility to talk about it. And I think we can make the change. And if we can force the change, make the change, then we can improve things for this and the next generation. Um, Hussein, I've, I mean, we've seen in the past couple of weeks the um, players coming out, and we've seen the likes of yourself, um, Ashwell Prince, Makai Antini, and even Sia Colisi also putting his weight behind the movement. And, I mean, my biggest thing I want to find out from you as someone who's actually been the forefront of this movement in South Africa's point of view, um, what are your thoughts in terms of uh, what is Cricket South Africa is looking to do in other unions in this current time? Because I think it's it's been great that um, everyone is voicing um, the discrimination and all the other issues that they've faced in the system. But is there a willingness from the from our mother body and other unions to actually actually start this conversation or, or what has been uh, any, anything that they're looking to do or have you been approached to maybe um, start these type of conversation and obviously lead to actions? Yeah, I think that's a very good question, Nono. And, uh, and I think for me, um, at the moment, a little disappointed with Cricket South Africa. Uh, I'm a bit concerned about where they're going now because I have a gut feel and I may be mistaken, and I hope I'm mistaken, but I have a gut feel that they're going to try and cover things up with statistics. So I have a gut feel they're going to come back to the public, to you and I, and show us a spreadsheet with how many black people they're employing in the office, how many coaches they have, you know, how many uh, 
kids they have in this team and that team. And so, so by, by using those type of statistics, they feel, they may feel that they're doing enough and maybe people higher up, whether it's government or whoever may feel that, okay, as far as a particular scorecard is concerned, cricket South Africa are fine. They're okay. They're better than maybe rugby. They may be better than some other sport and everything's okay. But, you know, for me, and, and you will know, no, no, as, as a cricketer playing the game, you know, transformation and racism is, is there's a lot more to it than that. There's, there are times when you can't prove racism. You can't say that this guy called me A, B, and C or called me a name or whatever the case is. Uh, but you know it's happening. You've been excluded. And if, you've, if you've been excluded from a set that, like Makaya says, he was excluded and he felt excluded, it's a feeling. You're feeling something in the environment that's making you, that's excluding you from it. There's a, there's a, there's a dynamic to it that goes beyond a scorecard. It goes beyond the numbers and the statistics. So it's fine having players of color in the team. And I must say, Cricket South Africa, from when I was playing in 91 to now, there have been improvements. I mean, the fact that um, you, you, there is a target or a quota, whatever you want to call it, at first class level, um, at franchise level, um, it's, it's, it's forcing numbers there, right? And it's making sure that you have a certain number of players of color in the system all the time. Now, when I was playing, and I can tell you, you know, you played one game in an all-white team, and if you got a 30, that wasn't good enough, you would drop the next game. And that's how it went, you know. Um, at the moment, selectors and coaches can't do that. They need to have a certain number of players in the team. So if you're good enough, you will play. And, and I think that's, so there has been improvement in that sense. Then the next improvement that Cricket South Africa adopted was this quality of opportunity. And I think they started moving in the right direction as far as quality of opportunity because what that really means is that as a cricketer, you can't be selected to play in the team because they need five players of color and three black Africans. So you're in the team, but then you don't bat and you don't bowl or you bowl out of position and bat out of position. So they started moving to monitor quality of opportunity. We still have problems there, but now we need to move to the next level, which is the structural, the systematic, as well as the psychological um, and inherent racism in the system that protects white cricketers as well as puts black cricketers in a position of disadvantage. And that inherent racism is there. We feel it, we know it's there. but sometimes you can't explain it to, to a white person because they, they may not be able to understand it. But you and I know it's in the system and it's part and parcel of the system. Yeah, I think that, that, that is spot on. And uh, I think in terms of um, what's happening in the union, I, I definitely think there's, there can be, uh, there's definitely room there to start looking after those subtle um, racial issues within a setup. Um, in terms of the public now, when we've got our media as well, that play a huge role in our sports. Do you think now, in terms of perception, that can they can play in terms of how, for example, targets or transformation or quotas are perceived by, by the public? Because I think that is also a huge responsibility in terms of the media 
how a black player, for example, I might know a black player as a, a quality player, but now when he gets to a national level, he's been seen as a quota or a target. How do we now, in terms of the media, play a better role in, in educating the public so that we get a holistic picture of a player before um, the other things come into play? Yeah, another is, you know, over the years, there are many, many examples uh, of where you would have a report on a particular match uh, and you would find that a black cricketer took four wickets and a white cricketer maybe took two wickets um, or maybe scored a 30 or 40 and the headline would be turned around in a way where a particular player, there's a, a spotlight shone on a particular player because you need to, there's a, there's a the national selection uh, coming up for the World Cup and there's a spot coming up. I mean, just to give you an example of what you're talking about, is it, it, so powerful. And if the media don't come on board with this, I think the media need to take responsibility. And I'm not blaming media particularly, but, you know, sometimes you do pick this up. So last year I was in the selection panel and, you know, before the World Cup, there was a lot of talk about who that 15-man squad was going to be in that World Cup. And, you know, we got into selection meetings. There was, at one stage, one spot um, available for three batters. Or it, it looked like that. If, uh, I'm trying to remember. And you had Riza Hendricks, you had Aidan Markram and Hashim Amla. So, sorry, there were two spots available and there were three, those three players. And, you know, the amazing thing was um, the amount of headlines that, and, and take nothing away from Aidan Markham. He's a fantastic player. I have a huge respect for him as a cricketer. Um, I, I genuinely believe he deserves his spot in the South African side. And I think he'll go on to score plenty runs. He's a wonderful player. Having said that, Aidan Markham had about 20 opportunities playing ODI cricket for the Proteus in, in that, just leading up to that World Cup. And he was averaging, I think, 22 or 25 or somewhere around there. Lisa Hendricks has had a similar number of opportunities and also, also was averaging around about 20. So they were very similar. But you would never be able, you would never tell that if you had to read, pick up the newspaper every day. Because every time you picked up the newspaper, it was about how Adrian Markram deserved to be in that World Cup squad. I mean, one of the ex-players, um, I think he may also be a commentator, went as far as to say that, no, in fact, it was a commentator, went as far as to say that South Africa will be absolutely crazy if they don't have Adrian Markram in their team, almost talking about him like he was a Don Bradman. Now, you know, this is the type of media push that we've seen to try and get white players in the team. I remember a similar incident when Alviro Peterson, many years ago, uh, was actually, in inverted commas, pushed out of the national team when really, you know, he, I, I wasn't on the selection panel at the time, but I remember watching this play out very carefully. And, and, and observing how he played out and watching Jacques Rudolph get into the national team, replacing Alviro Peterson, when really Alviro Peterson hadn't done too much wrong. And Jacques Rudolph had scored a number of hundreds at the domestic level. But the media pushed to get 
Jacques Rob into the team was unbelievable. It was almost like there was an agenda. There was like a, uh, an avalanche of news reports about this player. He has to get into the team. If he doesn't, these guys are absolutely nuts. And so the, those type of things, you know, and when people say, why is there a need for affirmative action or targets or quotas? That's one of the reasons. He said, you still have, unfortunately, whether we like it or not, we still have a media that is still predominantly will support and, and, and look after a white player, even if he fails. And if it's a 50-50 between a black and a white player, the media will be pushing the white player to get into the team. I have no doubt about that. So for me, that's why it's so important that we still make sure we put things in place in order to protect black players in the system. And when we talk about systematic racism, that's what we're talking about. It's not pointing a finger individually at people to say you are racist, but the system and the way it operates makes life very difficult, makes it an uphill battle for a player to get a fair crack, to get a fair opportunity, to get a fair run in the team. And those are things, I mean, there are times when I had to walk into a selection meeting and say, guys, can we please ignore the media? Can we please ignore what's going on out there in the media? Let's select the best 11. Because selectors get influenced by what they read in the media. And well, I was saying, that was, that was my question. I mean, do, I mean, truly, do selectors really care what, what, what journalists are writing? I mean, if... if, if Ken Borland in The Citizen or Telford Vice in The Times before he was with Crick Buzz or Fados Munda in, in Crick Info, me, whoever, whoever's uh, accepting my my pitches on <laughs> that particular week. Um, I mean, do, do you guys really care what we're writing? You know, I, I don't... I think it's... If there's... So, so you know, what media do is media shape public opinion. So if I'm a selector and I go into uh, and I've got a group of friends and we're on a group and they're all hammering me about Markham should be in the team. Why isn't Markham in the team? When is he going to be in the team? When is he getting his opportunity? They get their opinions from reading the media. Mm. So the, the pressure mounts. So, you know, for me personally, I, I like I prefer, and you know, I think we all should be as objective as we possibly can in those positions. Mm. But at the same time, you know, like somebody said to me the other day, uh, Cricket South Africa, like now we have independent directors and you know, you need independent. But the reality is, Daniel, not many of us are truly independent. And, and why do I say that is because we all have a particular affiliation. We come from a certain background. We have certain type of friends. We come... There's a social cultural affiliation that we come from. If I play for a club, uh, maybe Wanderers or Pirates, those are my buddies. I'll drink with them. I'll have a prize with them. We'll mingle together. We'll have a WhatsApp group together. And you tend to share similar opinions as you go. Now, I have to be very careful when I was on the selection panel that I don't get influenced by my friends because, you know, you've got to be careful. So, the people in those positions have to take the responsibility to be as objective as they possibly can, come in and select the best team. Um, but I must say that when there's a push on all fronts, be it on the web, in the media, the headlines, you're driving, you switch on the TV, switch on the radio, I think that 
that that shaping of public opinion can put pressure on people, be it coaches, be it whoever, because everybody is now saying that, you know. So what then happens is like often I would say to uh, players, like you know, if a player came to me and said, look here, you know, will I get into the team? Won't I get into the team? You know, what I would say to him is, listen, dude, my advice to you is go there and just score runs, you know, um, and we know you need to score runs to get into the team. But if you can score runs and make life very difficult for us and actually make us look stupid by not selecting you, then you put yourself in a power position because we don't have a choice. We have to select you. So the media I find in South Africa, and let me just add a right to that. Let me just say that I think there's many fantastic journalists in South Africa. We are privileged. I think we have some wonderful journalists who, who are absolutely objective. They understand the dynamics of politics, everything, the, the landscape of South Africa. So, uh, you know, we have fantastic journalists in South Africa. Uh, but you do get those that, that and, and sometimes people are innocent, you know. You just get sucked into a particular opinion. I remember when, um, when I was playing and, you know, you would have sometimes players get pigeonholed into a certain... So sometimes a coach, one coach or commentator would say, Makai and Tini can't bowl a slow ball. Hmm. And because he can't bowl a slow ball, he can't play one-day cricket. And, and, and that was an actual comment made by an ex-cricketer, a commentator, many years ago when Makai and Tini was playing in Australia, if you recall. So somebody says that, then a journalist who's innocently reading that comment from an ex-cricketer was like, He's an expert, so if he says it, it must be true. So he goes like, Makai and Tini, if it's a 50-50 call, let's rather pick somebody else. He can't play one-day cricket because he can't bowl a slow ball. You know? And so that opinion spreads like wildfire because it came from one so-called expert. Mm. You know, so sometimes people innocently get caught up in this as opposed to saying, hang on, he may have been an expert, but you know what? Let's interrogate that comment because that comment was not a fair comment firstly. Secondly, there's a lot of things it didn't take into account and we need to look at things more broadly. And and I guess what you're then saying is that those innocent comments aren't just coming from a, from a place of ignorance in terms of trusting these so-called experts. They also come from, from positions of ignorance from class and, and, and social standings where someone might say, I mean, I remember, you know, I remember a time when Hashim Amla's backlift was a sign that he could that he couldn't play fast bowling, and what fast forward three years and his backlift was why he was so good on the cut through fast bowling. Nothing had changed; it was just our perception of the exact same thing. But you you you, touch, you, you both have touched on something so fascinating to me, and, and I wonder how do we move forward now? So the conversations are happening. This podcast reaching all the people that it's reaching, no doubt all, all the right people are listening. Um, but we've seen, we've seen Makai, we've seen Alvira, we've seen Ashford, we've now seen Rassi and Fath, some, some prominent white players joining in the conversation, kneeling bef- before the Solidarity Cup. In a month's time, two months' time, a year's time, th- the clamor is going to die down and we're really going to have to now see a different landscape. I guess the big question is, what does that landscape look like? I think at some stage, you know, for the for the cricketers in the change room, they're going to have to get together and, and stand shoulder to shoulder and, and play as a team. And as I said earlier, they're going to have to be professional. Cricket South Africa have the responsibility now to make sure that they, number one, allow 
people to come out and talk about the experiences because once these honest conversations are allowed to take place, whether they're out in the open, whether they're um, in a room, whatever the case is, but if people are allowed to talk about this, that's the only way you can begin the healing process. And if you, and if you get, and you begin the healing process, and I, mean, I think coming back to Nona asked the question early on, and I don't think I completely answered the question. I think Cricket South Africa do have the responsibility to have these conversations with key individuals, be it ex-cricketers, ex-administrators, it could be maybe an ex-elector like myself having been in these positions, where you understand the dynamics, the psychology of what affects. And, you know, if we are serious about wanting to win a World Cup, I can tell you this is where it is. This is where the problem lies. There's no two ways about it. Because, you know, psychologically, if a player, be it a black player or white player, is feeling threatened, he's not comfortable about his place in the team. And, and there are many white players who have similar fears, you know, because they feel now, on the other hand, they're hearing the media talk about quotas and targets and they're feeling that we need to take the call bank and get out of here because even if we're good enough, we're not going to get selected. So there's a lot of fear-mongering coming from these ex-white cricketers as well. And, and that creates that dynamic as well. So, so Cricket Salary have this responsibility to get this out in the open, talk about it, start the healing process, and then begin to work towards a solution. Now, a lot of people are talking about having a TRC in cricket and a TRC, which is, of course, a truth and reconciliation uh, is commission or committee. I don't know. But anyway, that's the TRC. We know the one that we should do to yes. um, chair. Um, it may have been in what, 1992, 93, 94, somewhere around there. And, you know, a TRC in cricket, I think, would allow people a liberating experience because that's what it's about. It's about giving people the opp opportunity to liberate themselves. Mm. Get it out there, talk about your experiences, share your experiences. People who may have been perpetrators of these type of things, and I use the term perpetrators sensitively because, you know, sometimes people are perpetrators not willingly, unknowingly, and they're just part of the system and they got caught up in it. Um, and, and But in the end, you've done cricket at this service, we've done South African cricket at this service, we haven't gone and picked our best players, and our best players haven't come through. And you get a sense, I must say, in South Africa at the moment, because there's, there's such a division, there's factions this side, factions that side, how is it possible for us to get that best team playing their best cricket on the field? We need to work towards that. And I think by tackling these, when I say soft issues, I'm talking about, you know, soft skills. These, these issues of the field, not the hard issues of numbers and those type of things, but the psychological issues, the issues that really affect a, a player when he's in a high-pressure environment. Can he back his teammates 100%? Does he, do they trust one another? You know, that's the other thing. Do, do a white and black cricketer in the change room, do they trust one another? And I, I think we're moving towards that. But what all this, and particularly the Black Lives Matter um, experience in the last few weeks has shown, is that there is a lot more going on psychologically, um, experience-wise, that black cricketers are experiencing that maybe the white cricketer who stands next to him doesn't really know about. You know, he thinks he knows him, 
but he's not really feeling it. He's not really empathizing with that black cricketer and the real challenges that he's going through psychologically in order to stay alive, to put food on the table, to come out there and perform under all the pressure that's taking place. So just, just one final question from us. You're not the first person to raise the, the concept of, of a TRC, um, not just in cricket, but in South African sport. But one of the main criticisms of the TRC is that it was a lot of rhetoric without anything really substantially changing. There was a lot of lip service, but unlike, say, what happened in, 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 in Germany post-Nazi post rule, was there was a failure of, of accountability that, that white perpetrators, and I, and I use that term with less sensitivity in this context than you did earlier, were, were largely let off the hook in, in that they could go up, say we're sorry, and walk away. And I, I, don't, mean to, I don't mean to single out uh, Robbie Freilink exactly, because I know he's not the only one, but as, we, as we've heard recently, he, he has been accused of, of allegedly being involved in, a, in, in, quite frankly, a racist attack on, on, a, on a teammate where he punched a teammate in the face, as you said, perhaps because he was black. Now, I'm not saying I, the story still needs to unravel, but do you want to see reparations? Would you like to see more, more, more tangible um, outcome from a TRC-style commission? And who would lead that conversation? Would that be the president? Would that be the director of cricket? You know, what, once, once the TRC is happening, what is the end product of that? That's a very good question. I think that, that was the one um, soft underbelly of the TRC, the, the one downside to it is that you felt there were not, not enough, rep, there was no reparations. Like, for example, people who, who did the killing, who were responsible for all those atrocities, got away with murder, didn't they? Literally. Yeah. Um, and I think, I think that could be a lesson we could take out of that TRC and, and bring it to cricket. So, for example, if there were certain individuals whose names keep coming up, um, you know, and were responsible for making life very difficult or discriminating against players of color, be it as coaches, be it as administrators, be it as ex-players in the protest change, you know, and Makaya spoke about how difficult uh, his environment was. And if there were players in there who were responsible for creating that environment, then, and, and those people, we're going to be very careful about allowing those individuals to still be part of our system because they're part of our system without acknowledging that they made a mistake and without acknowledging that, yes, they did it. I put my hands up. I was part and parcel. I got caught up in it. But you know what? I acknowledge I made a mistake. Now we can begin to move forward. But if they haven't done that, I think it's very difficult to look past it and actually still allow those individuals. I mean, there are some coaches, if you go and talk to players and you have to have a TLC, I guarantee you there are certain names that will come up a hundred times. There, will, there are certain coaches and names that will come up over and over and over and players will tell you and parents will tell you that these guys treated my player like absolutely my son or my daughter or treated me like that. And, and this is what happens in the system. And yet, you will find that that coach will go on in the system somehow. He will have friends and buddies and people in high places. And he becomes, next thing you find out, this guy's a South African coach. You know, I'm not talking about the current South African coach, but there were instances like that in the past where you had individuals who, who really made life tough for black cricketers at different levels and ended up coaching South Africa. Mm. Um, so... 
Yeah, Daniel, I think that's going to be the challenge. I mean, who runs? If you have a TRC, it needs to be independent because if it's run by Cricket South Africa, you feel it could, could well become a window dressing cover-up exercise and, and, and then do you trust them to come out with the right recommendations and plans, plan of action after that and right strategy going forward? Um, do you get maybe the government, Department of Sport, or do you get somebody completely outside independent to do it? You get the ex-players involved, or maybe get a delegation of a little bit, maybe some ex-players, ex-administrators, maybe somebody from cricket South Africa, somebody from government, maybe a mixed panel of people that are trusted, and people trust to come in and do the right thing, and they come with recommendations that CSA board needs to accept um, going forward. And maybe, you see, it's got to, the, the, the key here is it's got to be a trusted panel of people who can, you know, when they bring those delegate that those accommodations forward, people must trust that, okay, now we are moving forward. Um, I think for too long in South African cricket, we've had administrators who've been window dressing. Um, I, I mentioned, like, for example, you know, people will come with fantastic numbers. And I, I'm, I'm pretty sure you will find in the next few days, Cricket South Africa, I guarantee you, mark my words, will come out with, with some statistics showing that we've got so many black Africans in the office, we're employing so many uh, black coaches, we're doing this, we're doing that, you know, and yes, that's fine and well, according to a particular scorecard and that, but, you know, all these issues we're talking about uh, go much further and beyond uh, a simple scorecard. So I think Cricket South Africa need to get, coming back to Nona's question earlier, I think they need to get serious. If you say you support Black Lives Matter, and if you say you're serious about transformation and genuine change, then you cannot be uh, still uh, skipping basic corporate governance principles um, and process when you appoint a head coach. You can't be doing that. And if there are question marks around that coach in the change room when he was a, a coach at the Titans, then surely those questions need to be asked. And if you go through that process, and then everything's fine and people are comfortable and you still appoint the individual, then that's fine. You know, but you've been through a particular process, we had people questioning, but at the moment, I think, I don't think people trust Cricket South Africa to do the right thing. So there's been a lot of things happening at the board level. That's another, another matter. I don't want to get involved in that because further I stay from administration, the better. I prefer talking about cricket. For me, the cricketing issues, the young cricketers at the moment, I think still have a challenge on the end. And cricket South have that responsibility to make sure that the playing field is level. If the playing field is not level, people are not going to trust the organization that they play for. And I think that's where we're sitting at the moment. And at the moment, the real risk, Daniel, is that by people coming out and talking in an open forum, in the media, on social media, we're actually dividing ourselves further. So how do we get to a point... We, and I don't think we must get to that point too soon. If we get to that point too soon where we say, okay, guys, we don't want to damage cricket, so let's start all working together and forgive and forget, I think that would probably be the worst thing we can do because it looks like we're patching up and it looks like everything's fine, but actually we're going to be sitting with exactly the same baby in five years' time or maybe ten years' time. When another, another Makaya and Tini comes out, maybe tomorrow it's Makaya's son comes out and says the same thing in five years' time. Then we're sitting in the same position, and we can't allow that. I, I don't think we can allow that. Right. Just, I suppose, just like, just like the actual TRC. But the uh, same, Manak, uh, from from both Nons and myself and the rest of the team at Short Fine Legs. Thank you so much for 
for your continued activism, for using your platform to espouse this, this very important message. And uh, most of all, for taking the time to speak with us. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. Thank you guys as well for, for giving me the opportunity and, and both of you for talking about it as well. I think we all have, as I said, that responsibility to keep talking about it. Thank you very much. Short, fine legs. Right, Nons, let's wrap up this week's show with some actual chat about cricket uh, for, for a change, I guess. Um, what did you make of the Solidarity 3TC Cup? Um, a once-off gimmick or is there something there? Yeah, it's been a, it's been a hard one to actually uh, kind of put my wrapper up my head around it and, 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 and say, yes, I think from Credit South Africa's point of view, it was a success. Um, there were the games, the games went out, you know, play were played quite smoothly, to be honest. And I think a lot of people were worried about the rules, I think, initially of how complicated it's going to be. But I think from a viewer's point of view, it wasn't. Um, it's quite easy to follow. Um, I'll just say that from a playing point of view, I think there's a lot of improvement from the players. I think um, it may be as it, it is, is off-season, pre-season for the players. And generally, this is when the players are working on their techniques and making sure that uh, the fundamentals and the basics of the game are in place. It just felt that maybe there was a little bit of a lack of taking risks in the early stages, the first half of the of, of the games, where um, players were kind of just easing themselves into into that. So from that point of view, from a, a viewer's point of view, I just thought the first half just lacked a bit of uh, power, lacked a bit of um, you know um, um, innovation from the players. And you feel that um, in the second half, we saw A.B. De Villas um, light up the place. We saw Aidan Markram light up the place. And I think that's I think what the initiators of this tournament would have probably had in mind. Mm. Um, just the concept of that manner where you're seeing uh, boundaries and, um, and bowlers having to suffer through through all, um, all that. Does it have to be eight aside? I mean, could you have a, could you have a three-team event where it's, where it's 11 aside, I mean, cheapest, you know, it's hard enough being a bowler in, in T20 cricket when, you, when you've got enough fielders. Now you're taking away a couple more of them. I mean, is, is there, you know, I think, I think of perhaps the, the way the recreational game, you know, the game is played at recreational level. We, we've seen what a success um, last man standing cricket is with, with uh, reduced numbers. Could, could we perhaps see something develop? Do you think it's just going to be a one-off gimmick? I mean, will, could we see a, this part of the silverware that, that franchises could win? I think it actually is uh, um, probably... Uh, Cricket South Africa would definitely continue with it. I think mm. it's something that they think it's worked out quite decently first time around. Yes, it didn't have um, spectators, uh, which I think would play a massive role yeah. in terms of promoting it even more. But I think to make it a little bit more exciting, you need, I think you need the bowlers to maybe think outside the box a little bit more. Yes, it's, it's, it's against them. The, the game, that game, particular form of the game is against them. But um, you just think that um, there could have been opportunities for bowlers to try different things, come around the wicket, um, bowl with a um, um, slightly more packed side of our leg side or offside, and you, you try to do something out of the box. We just felt that we were watching a normal 
cricket game being played in just different rules. Maybe widen the, you know, the wide lines for the bowlers or give them something different to think about. We are a country which hasn't won a, a World Cup. So this is an opportunity to explore, um, innovate and try different things that might help us in the forms of the game that obviously we we love, which is a 50 overs and a test test game, a T20s. So it's important that um, I don't think it's, it's we should uh, blow it off um, now. I think it's an opportunity for us as a country to try something different mm-hmm. and maybe it might help us be able to, to obviously um, uh, have a... a innovative ways of approaching T20 and 50 over cricket. No, I, I completely agree. And, you know, it kind of makes me think of the way there's almost this existential angst in the UK about the 100 coming up. And, you know, I, I, I've heard the argument, and, and it completely rings true here, is that cricket will remain cricket. There's a dude running up, bowling a ball, and another guy's going to try and whack it into orbit. You can tinker with, with everything else on top of that, but the framework of the game remains the same. And I actually think... It wasn't that difficult to understand. It was it was quite hard following the score, like on, on, on Crick Info. I, I, you didn't really know what was happening. But watching it live, it, it, it was easy to digest. Um, some positives, obviously, you, you, you spoke about um, about AB, but really got the, the, the standout positive has got to be Aiden. We, we we hear so often about how he struggles against spin, but he he really took to Bryce Shamsi to the cleaners. Good good signs for the future, or, or is it is, is the is the sample too small? Sample is still too small, but I mean, as a player, you take confidence wherever you can get it. I mean, if, if confidence in the middle is always the greatest um, confidence that you can get as a player. Mm. And he'll be, I mean, hoping that, you know, he'll take that into his training now, knowing that he's been on the field for maybe a couple of days, I've played a warm-up games as well. You know, it's, it's important that it's been a while for him. We've got to, got to have that in mind as well, that um, he's been injured at... Uh, He's coming back of um, coming from a season where he was out of form, so he needs to build his confidence again. We know he's a quality cricket player. We know there's a gem of a player in there. It's just that you know, couple of technical issues that he needed to sort out. I'm sure he would have had plenty of time in the off season to to look after those. But time in the middle, um, you, you cannot substitute. So um, great to see him back playing and obviously looking positive. And yeah, I think it's he'll build on that. Mm. Player who is who is just on top of the world in terms of confidence is Ben Stokes. He played a starring role in England's 113 run victory at Old Trafford against the West Indies to square that three match series one all. Stokes is now the number one all rounder. He's the Test number three batsman in the world. I mean, is there a better cricketer on planet Earth right now? <laughs> is um, I don't think. I mean, as any cricketer around the world will um, say no. And at the moment, I think he's shown that bat ball on the field is someone that um, cap- any captain could rely on. Um, for me, uh, the, 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 the 175 stands out more than the, the bowling and all that stuff because um, coming in at five, coming under pressure and continuing to, you know, produce for England, I think for me, it's showing that he's going in the right direction, um, especially in test cricket. And um, yeah, I mean, what what more can you, can, could you have asked for? I mean, he had an incredible year last year. Yeah. Um, to to come back and um, looking like, he, you know, he's put that aside straight away and he's, you know, playing, playing like last year never happened. I think 
that shows for me someone that is hungry for more successes and is showing that, um, you know, Joe Root is not in the best of forms. Mm-hmm. Yes, he's coming back from um, uh, having um, a baby. But um, I think now the, the England side heavily relies on Ben Stokes as the main batter. I think we used to say Joe Root used to be that person. You feel that now Stokes is the, the go-to guy. And um, yeah, we can't, we can't also take away um, Sibley's knock. That was incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, we talk about someone that allows the team to bat around him. And I think his role should not be underestimated how important it was. There's 100 of like 300 balls, which is it's so boring, <laughs> but it's needed in any cricket side, especially in test cricket. So that was also a fantastic partnership. Have you ever shared the dressing room with, with, with someone, not, not like Stokes, obviously, but, uh, you know, because he, he, I, I really feel like he's one of a kind. But you, you remember back when, you know, there was a stage where Jacques Cullis was South Africa's fastest bowler, um, he was obviously their best batsman. He stood at second slip and, and, and caught everything. And he really was, the, you know, if Jacques had a bad game, especially in a test match, South Africa was probably going to lose. If he played well, he could, he could do enough that he could even do like 70% of the work and everyone else would just have to chip in 30%. Have you ever shared a dressing room with a guy who, who, who's just doing it all? And, and what's that like? Does it bring everyone forward or does it, does it actually... Do you foster any insecurities ever? That like, oh my word, we are. I'm a different species to this guy. I mean, the first answer is no. I mean, we haven't had cricketers like that in in a long time. And I mean, you we're getting to starting to see a, a Vian uh, Mulder now, who's shown glimpses of that mm. for the lines. Where in his first season, I mean, he was scoring hundreds, taking fivers. He wasn't fielding at slip at the time, but I mean, he just had all the attributes to be a, a fine creator in the future. Mm. Um, that's the closest that I've seen in franchise cricket for me. I'm someone of, of that stature. Right. Uh, I think it's important that um, you recognize that, you know, someone like Ben Stokes, any cricketer would love to be, I would love to share um, the change room with that person because, you know, man, um, he makes things happen. And it's someone now who's becoming more and more reliable. When you talk about Jacques Callas, he was reliable. I think the word reliable, you know, it gets used. I mean, you know that if you nick someone off and he's going to second slip, it's going to be out. Yeah. He's got the ball. He can hold, um, hold one end and also be able to take wickets because he could bowl 140 kicks plus yeah. in his prime days. And at number four or number three, he could keep it tidy for the team. It allows the team to bat around him. So those for me were like serious attributes to, to have, knowing that this guy, most most games is going to give us a solid performance bat ball and on the field. And, and it makes life so easy for coaches as well because balancing your side is even much easier because you know that you can pick you can pick um, maybe one batter more or one bowler more because you know that you've got that three-in-one cricketer as well in your team. So it allows so much flexibility in any cricket side as well. So um, I'll say now it's always a joy for any cricketer to play with such or such players. I'm so glad you gave a shout-out to Bjorn Mulder. I, I, I'm a huge fan of him and, and I, I kind of... <laughs> I kind of stuck my reputation as a journalist on on, on his career because I so I, con- I managed to convince the editors of Crickbuzz to publish the story. Is he the next Jacques Cullis? And I I, I 
I'm really hoping he does turn out to be because I, I, I think he's a lovely guy and I think he's a hell of a cricketer. Um, we'll end on this. Have you ever been that guy in a match? Have you ever just walked off four days of cricket and just absolutely owned uh, an entire match? Catching, runs, wickets, doing it all. Ever happened? Yeah, yeah it actually happened last season for me when I came... Um, Buren got called up to the national side at day, uh, day three, I think it was. And I was I spent the first three days just I was twelfth man. First three days just doing my drinks, batting during the lunch breaks and bowling during the tea breaks. And when Buren got that national call up, I had to obviously get myself ready. The lines at the time were batting, and I and. I was told that, okay, you need to get ready. Um, you'll be batting next. So now I'm thinking, okay, I'm going from not playing and I need to be on the field. And I scored a 50 coming yeah. in. Up, and when we got to ball, I took a four-fer. <laughs> that was the closest I've ever you know, um, felt maybe to, to that bench stokes type of uh, feel of uh, contributing and almost changing the game. Um, in an instant, so uh, yeah, that was that was incredible. Last season, just coming in, scoring a fifty, and taking that forfeit. If you start, if you started that match, you probably would have doubled both, got a hundred, and taken eight. And the probably got duck duck. This game. Well, on, on that on that self-deprecating note, I think I think we can end this this week's pod, guys. Thank you so much for your continued support. We're loving the engagement online, both Nons and myself. Um, thank you for joining these important conversations and the. And the conversations that are less important, but are still fun to have. Uh, I'm Daniel Gallen. My host is Nona Pongolo, a Lions all-rounder and just an all-round top human being. Um, give us a follow on short underscore fine underscore legs on Twitter. And while you're on social media, give some love to our producers, Raider Media. Um, they've got a whole bunch of, of great podcasts. They've got some hockey shows. They've got a, a weekly sports quiz where they do they've, they've got one on Tuesdays and one on Thursdays that they do with celebrities. Go give them some love. We'll catch you next week.